Thanks for that, John. I don't usually get an introduction, so I feel, I feel special today. I want to add my word of welcome to what Justin said at the beginning of the service. If you're here visiting with us, maybe here for the first time or have just been coming for a few weeks or are online visiting with us, we hope that you will feel welcome and feel comfortable among us. So if you're joining us for the first time, uh, or if you haven't been with us for a few weeks, we are in the process of studying a book in the New Testament of the Bible, and it's called 1 Corinthians. So we call it a book, but it's actually a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a church in a city called Corinth. And he wrote it at a time when the church was growing like crazy. And you can read about that in the New Testament book of Acts. This all started in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus. And it spread to Judea and Samaria. And then missionaries like Paul took the gospel message. Gospel simply means good news. So they took the news about Jesus, that he had changed everything in their lives, had renewed them, had transformed them, and they went out into the far corners of the Roman Empire and all around the Mediterranean world. So Paul had planted this church in Corinth as a part of that, those travels, and now he's writing to this church that was deeply troubled. And we're going to see that trouble show up in at least five areas. First of all, the Corinthians were divided based on these factions that had developed, based on who their favorite preacher was, actually, and it was tearing them apart. We saw that over the first four weeks of this series in chapters one to four. Secondly, they were letting the sex-obsessed city of Corinth all around them shape their view of love, sex, marriage, singleness, and divorce. And that's in chapters 5 to 7. That's where we find ourselves right now. Third, they had all these cultural questions, how to live as Christians. They were unsure of what they should do, what they should refrain from, specifically about whether they could eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. And that's covered in chapters 8 to 10. And fourth, they were conflicted about worship. So Paul eventually will get to the role of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts in the church in this letter in chapters 11 to 14. And finally, the resurrection, which is so central to Christian faith, is something that the Corinthian Christians were also confused about. They were downplaying it, saying what really mattered was the example of Jesus and his teaching. So in chapter 15, we'll see that Paul explains why the resurrection, an actual physical bodily resurrection, is right at the heart of Christian faith. So as I say, today we're in that second section about sex. And if you're a parent or a guardian here with a child or watching online with a child, we want to give you a heads up on that. There won't be anything explicit in the sermon today, but uh, you've been warned that that is our focus today. So let's pray before we open up our Bibles. Dear God, I ask that this morning's message would come from you and would be packed full of your grace and your truth, that it wouldn't be built on wise and persuasive words that you may have given me, but that you, Holy Spirit, would come among us so that our faith does not depend on human wisdom and ability, so that our faith, when it needs to, 
can correct what we hear in the world around us and lead us back to you. And so ultimately that our faith would be built on your grace and your power. So point us to the cross this morning. Show us more of Jesus, we ask. Amen. So we're going to read from the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. And we're picking it up kind of in the middle of a section where Paul starts to talk about sex in a particular way. So from verse 9 to verse 20. Paul asks, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And here Paul shifts gears a little bit. He starts to quote from some sayings that were popular in that culture, in the city of Corinth, in the Greco-Roman world. I have the right to do anything, you say. And then Paul suggests, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and here he quotes from Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. So I've been thinking about Ukraine. I know a lot of you have too. I was there once, I was there 20 years ago with a group of students from my church in Toronto. We were developing a a mission partnership with the Hungarian Reformed Church and we were involved in some ministry just across the border from Hungary in Ukraine, not too far from where this missile strike happened overnight, if you read the news this morning. And one memory of our time in Ukraine, and we went on to Kiev and Odessa as well, came to mind as I was working on this passage this week. I remember being in Kiev airport, and a large group of 15 or 20 beautiful young women walked by. They looked like fashion models. They were all blonde. They were getting on a flight to Dubai. And the local guy I was with 
said to me, he said, you see that? That came with capitalism. That's a new export industry for us. Ukrainian prostitutes. Anyone with money or power can buy our women now. But I guess we're free, so it's okay. And I've never forgotten those words, obviously very powerful. Um, and what we've looked at today, what we've read already, uh, gets at some of what he was talking about there. The occasion for what Paul writes in this part of his letter to the Corinthians was that some of the Corinthian Christians were going to prostitutes. But the bigger, the deeper issue is freedom. Christians are free in the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? How far can we go? And so today we're going to consider God's overall view of sexual love. We think of God sometimes as the lover of our souls. Does he care what we do with our bodies? And Paul's answer here is a resounding yes. So first of all, we're going to look at the culture's view of what our bodies are for. Secondly, we'll look at the Christian view of sex and our physical body, and we'll cover a fair bit of the Old and New Testaments as we do that. And third, we will consider the centrality of the body of Christ for a healthy, God-given view of sex. So I'm a child of the 1960s. I sometimes like to tell people that I am a product of the summer of love, which suggests that my parents were crazy, wild hippies, which they really were not. <laughs> and I was born September, late September 1969, so it's likely I was actually conceived some cold January night in conservative rural Nova Scotia. But let us speak no more of such things. The 1960s, though, is where you need to start if you're going to wrestle with the history of sexuality in our culture. Maybe not where you would start, but it's a key moment. It was the decade that began what was called and is still called the sexual revolution. Notably, the birth control pill came along and changed what was possible sexually along with other technological and cultural shifts. But it goes back even further. John Stuart Mill, in his 1859 essay on liberty, wrote that an individual is not accountable to society for his actions, insofar as these concern the interests of no person but himself. And that might sound like just abstract philosophy, but in fact, that changes what people were starting to think of as their rights, their freedom, what life was for. And today, we might sum up that sentiment by saying, live and let live. But these views go way further back. They were prevalent 2,000 years ago in Corinth, a wealthy Greek city at a key crossroads in the Roman Empire. Corinth, as we've talked about, previous Sundays, was filled with shrines to Caesar, as well as temples to older Greek gods like Apollo and Aphrodite. And at the center of all that spirituality and religion was the worship of pleasure. And Corinth was famous for temple prostitutes. It had a global reputation for sexual immorality. 
And some Christians in Corinth apparently saw no reason to go against their culture in this regard. They decided that what they did with their bodies didn't matter because they were so spiritual with their newfound faith in Christ that they were above the spiritual world. Well, Paul disagrees with them on that. Twice here in chapter 6, he quotes the Corinthian Christians saying, I have the right to do anything. Now, they may have gotten this idea from Paul even, who taught a lot about freedom in Christ. But as Paul points out, we may be free, but not everything is good for us. And in that slide, I put, the orange didn't come out too well, did it? I put the quotations from Corinthian culture in a different color so you can distinguish who's saying what. Paul says that Jesus is still our Lord, and we can't allow ourselves to be mastered by anything or anyone who would draw us away from him. And Paul makes his position clear when he says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Does that line surprise you? I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of people in our world expect to read that kind of thing in Scripture. Our culture, for the most part, sees Christianity as anti-sex. But the Bible actually has a high view of sex. In Genesis 1, God created human beings as male and female. So God invented sex, and he said that it was very good. And then God immediately recognizes that it's a problem for a man to be alone. And so he creates Eve. And when Adam first meets Eve, he is so inspired, she takes his breath away to such an extent that it's like he spontaneously erupts with the first poetry, the first song in human history. And he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's celebrating. So this is God's design for sex and marriage. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So there they are, male and female, becoming one flesh, naked, unashamed, all right in the presence of God, and it was very, very good. Seems pretty sex positive, don't you think? But you might point out, if you knew the old, know the Old Testament, things change pretty quickly when sin enters the world with the fall, and sex becomes a whole lot more problematic and all kinds of rules start to, start to spring up around it. Well, that must be partly why the Song of Songs is included in the Bible, to remind us that sex was God's idea first and that it's good. Song of Songs is a whole book of poetry to love and sex. At one point in chapter 7, a husband says to his wife, "'How beautiful you are and how pleasing with your delights.'" Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I will climb the palm tree, and I will take hold of its fruit. It's in the Bible, folks. Elsewhere, a wife expresses similar desire for her husband. And later in this letter we're studying, Paul encourages married couples to have more sex. 
So the Bible is not shy about sex, and it's precisely this high view of sex, this respect for its power, that also leads to a concern for the harm it can do. And Paul addresses that here by talking about the idea that sex is just another appetite. It's no different from food for the body or the body for food. I think we have that same idea in our world. Hunger for food, hunger for sex. They're both basic appetites. And we need to, ha- to satisfy those appetites. And as long as there are two consenting adults involved, what's the difference? So let's talk a little bit more about food before we talk about sex. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Ratatouille. It's one of my all-time favorites. And it's, it's about food. It's about a rat named Remy who dreams of becoming a chef and joins forces with Linguini, a garbage boy in a Paris restaurant, to make that happen. There's one scene where Remy, the rat, runs into his brother, also a rat, named Emile, who does not understand why Remy cares so much about good food, why he's willing to wait for something special. Emile eats anything he can get his hands on. And he's eating something really gross-looking in this scene. And so Remy asks him, what is that? And Emile responds, I don't really know. Remy says, you don't know? And you're eating it? Emile says, you know, if you muscle your way past the gag reflex, all kind of food possibilities open up. (laughs) And later on, Remy tells his father, I don't want to eat garbage, Dad. Well, I think we could learn from that. Let's face it, we're not very good at putting limits on our food intake. We tend to indulge our appetites. I'm free to go down to Lady Glaze anytime I want and get two dozen gourmet donuts and eat them all myself. Was that an amen in the back there, Justin? (laughs) That's actually a silver lining of the pandemic is no buffet restaurants. That got shut down. That part was helpful. We also indulge other appetites. We consume a ton of sex-related garbage, whether it's on TV, in movies, or through the internet. I think God wants us to regain that gag reflex when it comes to sex. You could compare the Christian view of sex to something like French fine dining. When it comes to sex, so many people are lost in our world. They're basically eating the equivalent of garbage. But God calls us back to something better, to something pure and true, committed and loving. And it's worth waiting for. But we want what we want, and we want it now. As Ariana Grande sings, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. That is our approach to the things that give us pleasure often. But God says, there are limits that I've established because they're true and good and good for you as well. God also says, wait. That's the refrain in Song of Songs. Do not awaken love before its time. Are you prepared to trust God that he loves you, 
that he wants the best for you and that he knows better than you do what you need. Paul makes his position clear in all of this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia, but the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. If we ever thought that Jesus was only the lover of our souls, well, we need to think again. Our bodies are for the Lord. That is their purpose. And the Lord is for our bodies. That doesn't mean God wants to control us or deprive us. It means he wants to guide us into greater health. He is for us. He wants us to thrive. When I was a pastor in downtown Toronto, I worked for over 10 years with students and young adults, and I spent a lot of time in coffee shops, a lot of time in conversation, getting to know them. And over and over again, I saw the dark side of sexual liberation. I saw it as I counseled young men addicted to pornography, but I also saw it in sexual brokenness. Heartbreak is a common human experience, but it's so much more painful when a relationship falls apart that has been sexual. You can believe the lies the world tells us about sex being just another appetite, but you cannot escape the hurt and the shame that comes from getting so close and intimate with someone and then having it end, and often end badly. The true purpose of sex, according to God's word, is to unite us with our husband or wife until death do us part, and to allow us, according to God's will, to be fruitful and multiply. Now, Paul is writing here about sex with prostitutes, the most casual form of casual sex. But he says this still applies in that case. It applies to any form of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. And he quotes Genesis 2.24 to make that clear. When you have sex with someone, you become one flesh. There is a spiritual connection. Sex is sacred. Whenever I officiate at a wedding, I love that moment when I get to say, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I feel like I'm kind of roaring a blessing of faithfulness on God's behalf over that couple. Our bodies are for the Lord and for our marriage partner. But in the end, it's not sex or marriage that will fulfill us. Only the love of Jesus can do that. In verse 14, Paul writes, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. It's the resurrection of Christ, most of all, that shows us God cares about our bodies, not just our souls. He's not just waiting to whisk us off into heaven. It's some spiritual euphoria. The resurrection shows us that the only kind of love that lasts forever comes from God. And it's the cross of Christ that is the measure of true Christian love. It's not about our rights. It's not about insisting on our own version of freedom. It's about laying down those rights for the sake of another. We are not our own because we're members of Christ himself and our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So if you're ever tempted to think of your body as just a machine or 
that your body is ugly or worthless, remember those words. The Lord is for the body. He is for you and your body. That's a promise that extends into eternity. And that's our ultimate hope. Even when our bodies get old and sick and start to break down, through an incredible mystery, a miracle really, we are joined to Christ's own body that was raised from the dead. And all of our appetites, our longings, our desires, as the Holy Spirit directs us, lead us to Christ because he's the only one who can satisfy them. He's the only true and lasting source of fulfillment. But the body of Christ is also his church. In this passage, Paul is talking about our individual bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. But earlier, the first time in his letter that he referenced us as temples of the Holy Spirit was back in chapter 3. And he was talking about us together as the church, not as individual temples. So what comes first is this togetherness. A right understanding of our individual bodies and what they're for helps us to find our communal place in the body of Christ. You can't have one without the other. And this can't just be some kind of abstract idea. The church is where we're called to learn how to love each other in everyday ways, in the messiness of relationships that sometimes are really hard, broken. And it's where we put sexual love as well in its proper place. It's in loving families that girls and boys learn the truth about sex, hopefully not on the internet. And not just loving either, families where boundaries are firm. If you're a parent, I want to encourage you to think about how this plays out in your home. If your child has a phone, should they be allowed to have that phone in their bedroom, especially if you don't have an internet filter at home? I would encourage you, too, to hold off on getting your child a phone as long as you can. For us as Christians, the church becomes the wider family in which we encourage our young people to be wise and patient about love, to wait for marriage, to look for what matters in a future wife or husband. It's a place where we don't get lost in false expectations. There was the whole purity culture thing in the 1990s, which elevated a view of sex that some people saw as Christian, but in fact uh, is not what the Bible talked about. The church should also be a community where those who are single are nurtured and honored and surrounded with love and friendship. I can think of people like that in our own church community. In the end, the church, if it's living up to its calling, if it's what it's meant to be, must be a place of grace and forgiveness and healing. So if you struggle with sexual sin, don't try to tackle it on your own. However hard it is, I want to encourage you to try to find someone you can talk to about it, someone you trust, a Christian friend, a small group leader, or a pastor, and maybe a Christian counselor to work through some of the deeper issues with you. 
When you make yourself vulnerable like that, when you take a risk and share those struggles, confess your sin to another person, God honors that courage and promises to begin his work of changing us. Paul is crystal clear on this stuff. He tells us to flee from sexual immorality. The consistent New Testament use of that word, in the Greek it's porneia, is to refer to any kind of sex with someone you're not married to. This includes, but isn't limited to, sex before marriage, adultery, and homosexual sex. This is profoundly countercultural in our world. But Paul says it anyway. He says, flee from sexual immorality, run away. Other temptations, God tells us to endure or withstand, but when it comes to sexual immorality, he tells us to flee. And I want to talk a little bit about our need to flee from pornography. I'm not sure if you knew this, but porn websites get more traffic every day than Netflix, Twitter, and Amazon combined and they make more money than all the pro sports leagues combined. A few days ago, we celebrated the second anniversary of the NBA season being canceled. Anyone remember that? It's a shocking moment when the pandemic, for me anyway, became real. But pornography generates more income than the highly profitable NHL, NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball. All that put together. 50 million North Americans are regular visitors to porn sites, and a third of them are women. This is not just a problem for guys, but it's worse for men and boys. 70% of men aged 18 to 25 visit a porn site at least once a month. And you hear people say all the time, it's not that big a deal. Who are you really hurting by doing this? But a majority of people, especially women, are coerced in one way or another into appearing in pornography, and sometimes that's through sex trafficking. I think of those Ukrainian women I saw in the airport in Kyiv, and there's a huge justice issue here. It's the poor who are victims of this most of all. Then there's the way that porn lies to us about our, what our bodies should look like and how sex should work. It even rewires your brain physiologically. And so you start to see others, women in the case of men, perhaps as objects for your gratification. And your expectations of sex will change. So porn shapes and warps your appetites. Look, I'm not interested in a big guilt trip here, but we have to speak the truth about pornography when what we hear so often is that it's harmless in our culture. And I think as it has become more widespread, we've started to see, hear really strong secular voices, not just Christians and other religious conservative people saying this is wrong, but liberals and, and women advocates for women especially noting that. So flee sexual immorality is what Paul says. How are we going to do that? How do we avoid this just being a guilt trip? Well, not by trying harder, not by our own willpower. 
Only by looking to Jesus and doing that in community is change possible here. Paul points to the blood of Christ. He says, Jesus purchased you from your sin. He died for all the ways that you are messed up. And that means he deserves your sexual purity. And he will give you the ability to live that out. Do we believe that? Listen to Paul again in verse 11. He writes, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is not something that gets withdrawn. That is not something you have to earn. It's only by grace. Jesus himself died for your sexual sin. He paid the full price for your disobedience. And so there is therefore now no condemnation. That is the freedom that we need. If you're here today or listening today and the issue for you is same-sex attraction, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I want to trust God with my body and I want to do his will, but I have desires that I feel like I can't control. I want to be clear. Hear me on this, please. I want to say that is okay. All of us have desires that are contrary to what God wants for us. We are in this together. And then I want to invite you to recognize that Jesus loves and accepts you just as you are. He'll not only forgive you by washing away the guilt of your sin, he'll give you the grace and strength to obey his commands, even though it will not be easy. And we want you to talk to us when you're ready. I really mean that. It's another question that we don't have time to get into this morning for us as a whole church. Courtright, are we a congregation that is ready and willing to welcome those who identify as LGBTQ or the one who comes out within our church community? I hope we are, but that is something that I think we need to explore more. I love how this passage ends. It ends with a promise. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So honor God with your body. And when I read that, I can't help but think of some words that have been such a comfort, such a kind of assurance of God's love for me over the years. Words that come as an answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. The question is, what is your only hope in life and death? And the answer, and this is something that you can make a prayer. My only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ 
by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is what Jesus is saying to you today. He says, I have called you my own. You belong to me. That's a promise that God will see us through to the end. That's a foundation we can build on. Our bodies, our whole lives are for the Lord, and the Lord is for us. He wants the best for us. We belong to him, and when we're lost, he rushes to our side. When we fail, he promises to forgive and restore us. And so, we're reminded once again that the Lord is good and that his love endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As Justin comes up uh, to lead us in the prayers of the people, I want to say that once a month, more or less, we have something called Talk Back, and we had one, was it last week or two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. Um, we have one coming up in two weeks. Right. Three weeks, we have one coming up. And as we work our way through these passages in chapter 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians, I really want to encourage you to, to the questions we're not answering and whatever it is that comes to mind as a source of consternation or, or bewilderment to you, just let us know what that is. We don't want to have to guess, ideally. Um, and certainly on that occasion in three weeks, a talk back, we can have that question and answer time that, that really does, in a way, more justice to this. So thanks for that.